this is Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. So today we're going to be talking about an article that I actually wrote with some colleagues on work family conflict and family identity. Um, and so I'm excited to talk to you about the findings from the article. But first, we have something to celebrate. We're actually in the same location today. Yeah. Um, Patricia's here visiting uh, for a client. And so we got to hang out all day today. It has been so fun. Um, Katina just moved to the D.C. area. She's in Alexandria. And I used to live in Alexandria. So not only do I get to see my lovely Katina, I also get to see some other friends. And I get to explore the town that I used to live in. And it's so much fun. It's changed a lot, but also a lot of things have stayed say the same so it's been it's been really fun yeah and it's been awesome because Patricia has shown me some places that are fun to go check out um and there are some places that weren't here when she lived here that uh, we were able to go discover together so we've Mm -hmm. been having a pretty fun day last night um we actually went out to dinner with a friend of ours who also lives in the area um and then we were able to uh kind of go out on the town walk around a little bit um, and then this morning we um, did some worker being stuff and got some coffee and lunch and had a pretty good day overall. Yeah, it's been really fun. And like being on the waterfront here, like it's very different than my waterfront, but like not in a bad way. It's really cute here as well. I love all the history here with like the, the brick buildings and the cute little row houses. Um, so I don't know. I, I can't complain. I wish we could do this stuff more often. I know. Me too. I feel like it's a really fun town to be in, and once we're done with, like, all the unpacking and, like, assembly of furniture, which Patricia <laughs> is witnessing in real time, I feel like we'll be, you know, settled and really happy here. And now I finally have, like, you know, I'm not hating on Philadelphia. I love Philadelphia, but where we lived in Philadelphia, we weren't close to water. We weren't close to, like, an area that had, like, really pretty views or anything like that. So now I'm really excited to live someplace because I'm always so jealous when you're posting on Instagram all the beautiful things that surround <laughs> you. And I'm like, everything around me is like dead and gross. So <laughs> so uh, I'm happy to be in a place where I actually have like nice things to look at now. So um, from a well-being perspective, that's yeah. probably helpful. Yeah. And we uh, were actually going to go to a workout class after this. And we were looking at yoga maybe for tomorrow. There's like a million yoga studios. So you've got a lot of stuff around that you can walk to to uh take care of that side of your well-being as well yeah or I just even think like walking around and being more active is a good thing like being so close to all this stuff everywhere I go if I go get coffee go get groceries go get whatever I'm walking back and forth and it's not a super long walk but you know it's a half a mile there half a mile back it adds up Mm -hmm. across the course of a day so I'm hoping it'll also add some breaks into my day and make me a little bit more active overall living in a place where I can walk to mostly everything. Because you can walk to a lot of stuff where you mm-hmm. live right now. So Yeah, yeah, it definitely helps. Um, it makes your breaks a lot more fun because um, you're not, like, just taking a walk, like, through a neighborhood. Like, you're taking a walk and there's, like, stuff going on. And, yeah. And uh, people to see, things to do, things to drink and eat. Can't complain. We awesome. both have it really well situated right now. Yes. And today we ate a healthy lunch and we're going to a workout class, but we did eat some pie. It's true. <laughs> it was chocolate pecan it was so and good. it was so good. But we split a, a slice. We split a slice. We did not finish the entire slice. We're, <laughs> cool. really, we were close, but. We're, we're splitting hairs here about why the pie was not that bad, but it was, <laughs> it was really good tasting 
And so, anyway. Balance is important. Balance is important. You need moderation. You can't just only eat kale all day because that yes. would drive you crazy. You need to balance your pie intake with your non-pie intake. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I think we did a decent job of that balance. I today. agree. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, we've been having an awesome day. And now we're going to talk to you about... Uh, this article on work and family. Yes, I want to hear all about it. Um, you being the fabulous author have so much more insight than what we normally mm-hmm. have with some of the articles that we're looking at. Um, so obviously we'd love to hear, you know, your experience around it too. Yeah, absolutely. I know it was, you were nominated for an award, right? Yeah, so um, it was actually pretty cool. Um, we So this article is the primary article that came out of my dissertation. And um, for those of you who are kind of less familiar with the way academic publications work. They just take a really long time. Um, And so this paper or this, my dissertation got finished in 2012. It's now 2018. Um, So it went through several rounds at a couple different journals before it finally found a home at the Journal of Vocational Behavior. Um, And we, um, myself and my co-authors, Christian Thorogood, who's at Villanova, and Jamie Ladge, who's at Northeastern, um, we worked together to uh, put take what I had done for the dissertation and put it into a publication format. And basically, uh, the article was nominated for this award called the Rosabeth Moss Cantor Award for Excellence in Work Family Research. And it was pretty cool. Like, I didn't really, I had heard of the award before, but I didn't really know what the process is. And, um, you know, a lot of awards are, like, nominated. Like, you have to, like, self-nominate or someone has to nominate you. So it was a question of, like, you know, is it actually the best or is it just like there's some other really cool thing out there that like just didn't get nominated? You know Mm -hmm, what I mean? mm -hmm. And so this award's different because they actually pull every single paper that was published in Work and Family for that year. And they have this like team of 60 people that take turns reading and ranking the articles through some sort of like very complicated steam that they end up then ranking the papers. And so Mine ended up being a finalist for the award, and uh, it made it to the top five out of 2,500 papers that they read and ranked. So I was really excited about it, and because I've been working on it for so many years, um, it was just good good, uh, feedback on the work. And we didn't win the the full award, um, the number one slot. I'm happy for the people that did win it. I think we should have won it, obviously. Um, But but it it was good to be in the top five, nonetheless. Yeah, it's great recognition for your hard work, and uh, for, again, for all those reader, li- readers, listeners, <laughs> I mean, you're not readers. reading, I mean, hopefully you're reading our site too, but yeah. you're not reading this podcast right now, um, and if you are, well, I mean, I guess somebody cool. could potentially be doing that, maybe, I don't know, I don't know, regardless, super off track, um, but I was just going to say that I think it's really great to have that recognition for all of the hard work. Um, it does take so long. There's like a whole review process when mm-hmm. you are publishing. You, you're submitting to journals. You've got people reviewing it. They're giving you feedback. They ask you to revise things. And even after you revise things, they could reject you, um, which is kind of why Katina was saying that there's multiple journals that she tried to go through because there's, you know, a lot of different places you can publish. There's lots of different journals that um, that go through this process where you they peer review your work. And, you know, maybe you're not a great fit for one journal, but another journal well it disagrees and and it fits them so you kind of have to try where you think you'll make the most sense and go through the whole review process and sometimes you have to go through the review process many times for the same piece of research um so it's it's kind of an interesting struggle just to bring up because you know we talk a lot about research then we'll tell you the year it was published 
But to that point, it could be many, many years prior that they actually did the research. So if they're talking about a topic that seems very current, like um, I know we did an article about smartphones and sleep, like it could have been so many years before the, what, what smartphones are today. Um, so whether or not that still fully applies, you know, is up for question, right? We think it probably applies to some extent, but there might be some differences with the different technology that continues to change. And that all moves a lot faster than publications do. So I think that's definitely a struggle that there that exists on the research side of things because it just takes so long. Yeah. I mean, it's good because you want people to really check the value, make sure that the quality of the work is good. So the, the peer review process is important, but it it's a little slow. Yeah. And that's why conferences can be helpful too. Like a lot of times when we recap conferences, um, it's good because, you know, you can get stuff out to a conference presentation um, and let people know what you're working on. So some of the earlier stuff, um, like I presented this work at conferences as it's evolved and we've collected or gathered new data, we might present in different venues so you can kind of keep track of what's going on before it comes out in publication form. So you can get a sense of what the kind of cutting edge, more timely stuff is through conferences. And then you see kind of the lag with what actually gets published behind it. Um, but that's why it's really good to keep on top of what's coming out because what you're getting is already lagged. So if you're behind on what you're behind on, then you're really behind. So it's good <laughs> to keep up with what's coming out. But yeah, this was, I think, even from a, just not even talking about the findings of the research yet, but um, just from the personal experience of going through publishing the paper, um, you know, we went through um, two different journals before we went through this one. And one of them, we were um, in a couple of rounds of revision before it ultimately got rejected. And I think like one of the things that I would just say about that experience is that if you really think that you've got something good and something valuable that the world needs to hear, no matter what your profession is, what it is that you think, um, or that you want to be doing to make a difference in the world, um, don't quit on it. Um, after, you know, one door closes or even two doors close, we were really, really bummed. Um, the second time that the paper got rejected by that point, um, it had been under review at one journal for a year and then under review at another journal for two years. So we, we had been spending, we spent three years just trying to publish the paper. Um, and then it was under review again for another year at JVB. Um, so we were pretty downtrodden when it got rejected at the second journal. Like it just felt like, oh, like we have to start this over. And there were times when I just kind of felt like I don't even want to look at this thing anymore. Like I worked on it for two years in my district as my dissertation and then another year getting it ready for publication. And then, you know, several years under review and now we're starting back at square one and it just felt really depressing. But I think that the good news is with being nominated for the award is like, wow, you know, we worked really hard on something. I thought that the message in the, of the paper was important and other people felt that the message of the paper was important too. So, you know, just because there were a couple people associate editors or reviewers out there that didn't like the paper doesn't mean it doesn't have something to contribute. And um, so I think regardless of what your profession is, um, it definitely gave me some good perspective on thinking through, you know, how to persevere through rejection when you feel like what you've got is worthwhile. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. I think that everyone, honestly, everyone can use that kind of advice because it's so easy to feel like, oh, well, you know, maybe in this job, my boss and I disagree on something mm -hmm. and the way that I do my work and you feel like maybe you're not cut out for that type of job. But if you go somewhere else, you might not, you know, feel that way anymore because they might value the way you do things differently. And I think it's a very important point, you know, like um, I'm just thinking of 
especially in, in careers kind of like graphic design or something that's a little more creative, you, people have different styles. So you could be in a workplace, you know, doing, you know, creating whatever it might be. And you and your team might be misaligned in terms of your styles, but that doesn't mean you're bad at what you're doing. It's just not aligned for that specific job. And maybe you go to a different organization, you do the same work, but your styles are more aligned and then you're, you're much better placed and you're valued a lot more. So I think that's really a good point. Like, you know, when you're rejected in one place, doesn't mean that you're bad at that thing. That just could mean a, a poor fit of some sort. And just, if you really are passionate about it and if you want to keep doing that work, or if you have a story that you really feel like needs to be told or whatever it might be, just, just keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, we were all really happy when it finally found a home. Um, and you know, I'm really excited to share what our findings are. Yeah. So give us a high level overview of what you guys found. Yeah. So the high level takeaways are that work and family can conflict in some ways that are unexpected based on how we usually think of work and family, but they make a big difference. So specifically what we're going to be talking about today is what we're calling stigma based work family conflict which is I feel that there's a certain aspect of the type of family that I have or the type of relationships that I have or the people that I have relationships with that people view as being less than or stigmatized within the workplace. So I may not be able to mesh work and family together in the same way that my colleagues can because I'm unsure how accepting they'll be mm -hmm. of my family type. So I'll give some examples. Like in our study, we use people in same-sex couples as our sample um, to take a look at how people managed this stigma-based work family conflict. But we also, um, in another uh, sample that we have that's not in this paper, but we'll use for something else later, um, we have people who were in interracial couples or people who were in couples where one person was struggling with a serious mental illness or people who had even children with physical disabilities or mm -hmm. something um, that they felt that they weren't sure how people in their workplace would be receptive to it. And what we found was that for people who felt that way about somebody in their family, just as much as the kind of conflict that we experience with time, like I just don't have enough time to do my job and my, and participate in my family or my job is really stressful and my family's stressful um, or I feel like I have to be someone I'm not at work, things like that that we've already looked at, that for people who experience that, it seemed to be a primary source of work and family conflict that they felt they just couldn't really talk about or mesh their work and family in the same way because people were not open-minded to the kind of family they had. Okay, so I'm just going to kind of recap what you've said. So we know that work and family conflict is something that can cause stress. So whether your work is interfering in some way with your family or your family is interfering in some way with your work. And we've talked about this on previous episodes um, and lots of our, what we've written about where, you know, basically the stress from one area can impact the other area. Um, or just, uh, I'm trying to think of like an example, like, you know, if your family's interrupting you constantly calling you with questions when you're at work, that obviously impacts your work. Or if you're at home and your boss is constantly calling you, then you're going to be interrupted at home. Um, and in this case, it's just as bad if you are concerned about your family based on something in your family that might not be the norm or the stereotypical norm. Mm -hmm. So whether you're in a same-sex relationship, your child has an illness of some sort, Maybe you've got um, some mental illness in the family, physical disabilities, um, or just an untraditional 
relationship or family dynamic and you're you feel like people might not accept you so you have that anxiety towards it that's that is going to create that same kind of stress between your work and your family correct yeah you got it um so we define it as an added layer of conflict that is experienced when family related stigma in your work role makes it difficult to fulfill your family role so i perceive that hey if i you know bring up the fact that I went on vacation with my partner and I'm in a same-sex relationship that even if people know that I'm gay at work, let's say, um, a lot of people talk about the coming out process. So people might know, and obviously that's a big part of um, invisible, we call it invisible stigmas, like um, religious stigma or sexual orientation, things that people can't see that people have to reveal to you. Mm -hmm. Um, when people make the decision to disclose that information, it's a really big deal. It's really stressful. And we talk a lot about disclosure. What we found here, almost everyone in our sample had disclosed that they were LGB at work. So people knew that they were in a same sex relationship. Um, but they felt like the more they brought their family up, the more it was a reminder of that to people. So even though they knew, they kind of felt like, okay, well, I told everybody that I'm gay. And we talked about that that one time. And now I'm never going to bring that up again. Um, because I don't want to keep like what our participants were saying, like throwing it in people's faces, like making people feel uncomfortable if they perceive people felt uncomfortable. Whereas people who are in opposite sex couples talk about their family all the time, talk about what they do uh, on, on a daily basis, on the weekends, on vacation, etc. Um, social media, like friending people on something was a big stressor. Like, do I want people constantly having pictures of me with my partner popping up in their feed as a reminder that I'm gay or I'm in a same sex relationship? Or do I think that it would be better if, you know, yeah, we had that conversation and I don't keep bringing it up to people or showing it to people because I have a, I have a feeling it's going to negatively impact me at work. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of um, what people were relaying to us as being their experience or the, the, the like mental experience of trying to balance those things. So what kind of jobs were your participate, participants in? They were in all different kinds of jobs. So um, we interviewed 53 different people um, who were in um, same-sex relationships. And um, a lot of them were in educational um, type settings. Um, but they really ran the gamut. Um, and so it was pretty... It was pretty broad um, in terms of what what kinds of jobs people had. And as I mentioned before, almost everybody had um, disclosed at work. So it was pretty clear that this wasn't just an issue of like, oh, well, once you tell people at your workplace, things will get better. Or like, I can't bring my family around just because people don't know. It was really like across jobs, across industries, it seemed to hold that people um felt that this was something different. This was a work and family conflict and not just about like me telling you something about my identity. What about location? Were they all over the country or were they all kind of in a similar region? They were all over the country. So one of the things that um, we are, we have been doing since the study came out and I'll talk to you a little bit more about the findings, but one of the things that we've been trying to do is take those findings and say, okay, what kinds of things did our participants tell us about the experience of having stigma-based work-family conflict? And what we're actually doing is we're turning it into something that organizations can measure. So we're creating like um, items for a survey so that organizations can actually hand out a survey like this to get a sense of are our employees actually experiencing this stigma-based conflict? 
Um, and so in the broader sample that we have, which is now like thousands of people that have taken this survey um, of stigma-based work on the conflict, we are finding some locational differences. Mm -hmm. So people who are closer to coasts tend to report lower um, levels of stigma-based work family conflict. And in the middle of the country, it seems to be a little bit higher, but we're still looking at that. In this study, we had only 53 people and they were really spread out. So we didn't have like a big enough number of people in any location to get like a really good sense of that. But in the bigger study, that's not part of this paper, but will be part of another paper. Um, we are seeing some locational differences. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. Cause like living in California, I mean, obviously I am not, um, in a same-sex relationship, so I don't know what that would be like in California or anywhere, but, um, I definitely do feel like I have seen plenty of people that put pictures of their couple, up, or, you know, themselves and their, their partner up in the workplace, and I, I feel like they're, the, the experiences that I've had as a, just a coworker, that didn't seem to be a concern, because if there's pictures up, then clearly, you're bringing it up all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Someone walks to your desk and they see these pictures. It's very evident um, what what is happening. It's not like that throwing in your face feeling because it's already there. It's just like everybody else's pictures in the office. Um, so I didn't know if like maybe that was just that one workplace or if there is a locational component. And I I I mean it would make sense geographically, just some opinions and. You know, if we go into politics, like party lines and different things, like it, it totally makes sense that there would be some of that. So it's interesting that you're finding it. Yeah. And it was interesting. We had one guy that we interviewed who was working for a pretty traditional bank, um, but he was in San Francisco and um, he was really funny when I was interviewing him because um, we interviewed people, um, you know, just are you in a same sex couple and are you employed um, full time? Do you consider yourself part of a family? And that's it. Um, and so we didn't, you know, lead people into answering the question. So we got some people who were like, I know people who maybe have experienced what you're talking about, but I have not personally. So we got to see like what predicted low or high on stigma-based conflict. But I talked to this one guy who was working for this bank and he had very low stigma-based work family conflict. And he was like, yeah, I work for this bank in San Francisco. And to be honest, in my office, if you're not gay, you are in the minority. Like, <laughs> so it did make a difference, you know, what town, even what town you lived in within a particular state could make mm -hmm. a difference. Um, so I think, yeah, location is certainly something that we are um, interested in seeing how it affects what happens within companies. Yeah. Well, it sounds like if you're in a location or a region that might be a little more accepting of these different lifestyles, mm -hmm. um, different types of families, and a little less traditional, then if that's just generally what's happening and people are accepting, then it would make sense that that stigma-based conflict would decline a bit because there's less stigma um, just in general. And then in locations where maybe people are a little less comfortable with some of these untraditional families, um, then there would obviously be more stigma. So it does make sense to me why geography might come into play. And it probably comes into play, and obviously you can tell me more about your findings, but around the organization's culture too. Because I'm sure you could be in a very, um, I don't know, traditional location, but your organization can be very accepting of everything and it's very open about all the different types of families that might exist. Um, 
then maybe you would be less likely to feel that way, depending on the company itself too. Yeah, you're really dead on with that. So we found that two things predicted whether or not people experience stigma-based work-family conflict, and it was their specific workplace environment and the kinds of policies and practices that their organization had specifically, and then the societal context that surrounded the organization. And part of the reason why the societal context that surrounded the organization made a difference is because um, some of the life components um, were also more difficult for people. Mm. So it's like, okay, you know, I have trouble finding suitable daycare where I feel like the people, maybe my workplace is great, but I can't find a daycare where people don't look at me funny when I drop mm. my kid off and they know that I have a same sex partner or there's something else going on, um, that I experience stigma. And, um, and so, you know, I drive an extra hour every morning to drop my kid off at a daycare where we feel safe. Um, and that takes time out of my day. So there were also some life related concerns, um, mm -hmm. that got in the way of people being able to, you know, fully participate in their work environment as well. So it's, it's similar to all other work life conflict where it can be your life is impacting your work and your work is impacting your life. Yeah. So the work, so if your work environment is good, then that means your work isn't really impacting your life negatively, but the reverse could be happening where yeah. your life situation is impacting the way that you're showing up at work. Yeah. And, and in the broader, when we made the survey, um, that we've been like administering for a while now, um, that now, like I said, a couple thousand people in same sex couples have taken the survey. Um, one of the things that we found, for example, is like, okay, if I feel my community's not accepting, then it causes issues for me at work because maybe, you know, I got this great job in X town, but and my workplace is great and I can tolerate living in a community that's not as accepting of the kind of family that I have because I've got this great job, but maybe it's causing stress for me at home because my partner works in a place that's not so great. And so their whole mm. experience is one of stigma, whereas at least I have the workplace arena, but it's causing this stress for me at home because it's like, because of my job is why we're in this town. You know what I mean? Yeah. A lot of people that I talked to that moved um, for jobs especially people who moved to like smaller, more remote towns for work felt like, um, the, their workplaces may have been fine, but the community context caused a lot of, um, marital strife or strife with, uh, managing childcare or things like that, that then impeded on their ability to concentrate on their work. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. Just trying to to think through it a little bit more, but what else did you find? Maybe that will help me. Yeah. So the stigma based work family conflict is sort of like any other conflict where it's sort of in your head, right? You're like, I just feel like these two things are not fitting together. And so as a result, then, because you, you perceive that these conflicts exist, you might act differently. So with most conflicts, it's this, like, I recognize mentally that this is happening and now I'm going to act differently at work or act differently at home. Um, and so what we found was that people did very specific things. And there were some themes in what people did when they perceived high levels of conflict. So one was that they physically separated their work and family. So a lot of when we talk about work and family, we talk about like being able to mesh work and family together when you want to and being able to keep them separate when you want to. And what people in these samples felt like was that there was this forced separation that, um, for example, if your workplace is having a picnic and people are allowed to bring their families, that's a great opportunity for you to spend time with your family and also, you know, maybe make connections at work. 
But for people in this sample, they felt like they could not bring their partner along with them or they could not bring their family members along with them because they weren't sure how people would perceive it. And so it was this forced separation of work and family, even when it would be more convenient to mesh them together. Mm -hmm. So it's not a decision either. Because, like, I think that there's less... People feel less stressed about it if they get to decide if they want to mesh a family and and work life together versus keeping them separate. So... It's, it's, if it's forced, then you're obviously going to feel a little bit more stressed because of it. Yeah. Um, but I did want to give another example of just kind of what you were talking about when it comes to your behavior being changed because of your perception. Because I think that's something that um, we haven't really talked a lot about. So when you feel a certain way, like if you're frustrated at somebody, you're probably going to act differently towards that person, right? Um or even if you feel like, we actually just talked about this example with a friend of ours. So if you feel like someone doesn't like you, you might stop being friendly to that person because you're like, well, they don't like me. Like, why am I going to put an effort? And then that person is going to see that you're not friendly and then they're going to behave that way too. So it just kind of creates a spiral of we don't like each other, even if that was not true, because maybe, the, maybe you just thought they don't like you for no real good reason. Um, so if you think something and then you start acting because of that thought, then that can really change your situation. So in this case, if you feel like people might be judging your family, um, there's obviously some reason why you feel that way. There's got, it's based in something, but you feel like your family does not fit well with your work and then you're probably going to continue to create additional situations, right? You're going to feel like you can't bring your partner to the picnic because you think that it's not going to work. You think there's a conflict there. Um, so you're, the way you react to the situation is going to change based on how you think about your situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people talked about that, that they kind of struggled with whether or not they should or should not um, participate in these kinds of things, which also cause this like additional stress. So, Mm -hmm. um, this one guy that I talked to, his partner worked on the street from him and he, his partner was in a workplace that was like really open and accepting, et cetera. And his workplace really wasn't. And because they lived down the, or worked down the street from each other, he would sometimes come and want to have lunch with him. And the guy that I talked to who worked in the less accepting workplace would always tell his partner to like meet him down in the lobby and not come up to his office. And his partner started to get annoyed being like, well, everybody at your workplace knows that I exist. Like you're out. So why are you hiding me from people? Like, are you embarrassed of me? Like what's going on? And it Mm. caused these like marital problems for them because, you know, he, and then he said, you know, I don't know what would have happened if he came up. I can't say for sure that people would have been turned off by it or not. But the fact that I just didn't know, and my job was really important to me. Like I needed that job to pay my bills and like, mm-hmm. et cetera, that, you know, I just didn't want to take that risk. And it was something that his partner really like couldn't understand because his workplace wasn't that way. So I think that it was also this, you know, yeah, it creates kind of this like loop of maybe um, almost paranoia mm-hmm. um, about what are people thinking? How are people thinking about me in a functional way? Because people could be thinking negatively. And so maybe that's helpful. But on the flip side, it also caused a lot of confusion because there's not really, unless people say something outwardly like discriminatory, it's always this question, Mm -hmm. this like mental conflict that people have, but it's not cemented. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, was that, was that smile real or fake from that coworker? Yeah. Like, do they really want to talk to my partner or is this just polite small talk and they're feeling weird right, right now? Right, exactly. Like you, if you feel like there might be this stigma, 
then yeah, it's hard for you to interpret what's happening in the situation you're in because you don't, you don't know, you, no one's going to, that's not true. Sometimes people will say horrible things, but in a lot of cases, you're not going to hear that. And you're just going based on how you're feeling. And if you're feeling a certain way, it can just continue to create, like you said, that loop Yeah. where you're just constantly not sure. And then that's going to create a lot of stress because if you're not sure, um, then I mean, that is extremely stressful. Yeah. And, and the prejudice and discrimination literature shows that, you know, when we used to ask people about the kinds of discrimination that they experienced in the workplace in the seventies, eighties, nineties, that it was pretty blatant. Like there were, there weren't as strong enforcement of HR related policies. There weren't as, there wasn't as much awareness and education around diversity and inclusion in the workplace as there is now. And so now people for the most part, at least sort of know what you're not supposed to say, which isn't a good thing, right? We want people to be inclusive and open in their attitudes, but people don't say things as much blatantly, but there's a lot more like microaggressions and like subtle things that people do that make it really difficult for people who are on the receiving end of that to pick up like, well, is that because they are not accepting of my family? Are they making that comment because we're gay? Or is that just me? picking up on that. So it's difficult for people to tell. And we had very few incidences that people reported to us where their workplaces were blatantly discriminatory. We had a couple, um, that were, that were pretty bad. So, um, one example, I interviewed this woman, she was a bartender, um, in a small town and, um, her, she and her manager at the restaurant were actually really good friends, but they had this like group of regular customers that came in a lot. And, um, I guess her boss knew that she was a lesbian, but the customers didn't know. They had no reason to know that. Um, And one day there was like a pride parade in their town and her partner had marched in it and she came into the bar after the pride parade and they like hugged and I guess they kissed and then like said, you know, she sat down at the bar to have a drink and the one guy like made a derogatory comment. Um, about them, uh, one of the regular customers. Mm. And um, so she, you know, confronted him about it and said, you know, I would prefer that you not use that word towards me. Um, He like called her slur. And he came back and said something to her like louder and more horrible. And she went back to go tell her manager like, hey, you know, this patron is saying horrible things to me. I think we need to kick him out. And because he was a regular, the manager said, you know, maybe you should just tell your partner she needs to go. And so she said it was really awful because, you know, she, she really felt like her whole relationship with her manager changed after that. Like she really liked him before. And then she was like, and she didn't like working there any longer. She was just like, you know, I felt like now it was just this fake place to work. Yeah, exactly. So we had a couple instances where there were fairly blatant things. Um, And then we had other instances where, you know, people were just really unsure whether it was their perception or not. But um, but that cognition or that experience of feeling that conflict caused people to do some some different behaviors that then caused some psychological, stressful experiences. So one, like I mentioned before, was this like physical separation. But another that I want to just bring up is that people also would sometimes leave out information from stories. So like, I'm not going to talk about my full weekend with you or I'm not going to Um, Someone's going to ask me what I did over the summer. I might not say I did anything for vacation because I don't want someone to ask me to show pictures because I'm concerned about that. Um, And we also found that not only did people like either suppress or fabricate information, but they did that differently across different people. 
So maybe like, I know that you're really accepting. So I'll talk to you fully and openly, but maybe like the person two cubes over, I don't know. So I'm not going to say anything to that person. Or maybe I know everyone in my workplace is cool, but I don't know about my clients. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was very like, um, their people's brains were getting tired trying to manage family related information, um, across people. So who they can and can't say things yeah, to and trying yeah. to figure that out. And like, basically if they're not sure if they can say something to them, then being different with that person than with somebody that they know better. Yeah. That's how, I mean, that does sound stressful. Yeah. Like you don't want to have to, you know, pick and choose what you're saying and like really monitor yourself that much. Cause that would be, that would be exhausting. Um, and the, I think the example you gave with the, the bar and like when you just mentioned clients, like that's another really interesting, um, component that I hadn't thought as deeply about, but it, it, let me just kind of gather my thoughts, but like you, if you're dealing with customers, like, you know, everyone, we're in a very customer focused society where, you know, the customer is always right. We have like this whole perception about, you know, the customer, the client should get what they need because they're better for business. And really, you know, obviously employees are very important. And we believe that having a happy employee um, is going to be better for your customers overall. And so if you have a problem customer, it's better to get rid of the customer than to get rid of the employee or create more issues with the employee. But a lot of employers don't think that. And I think it, you see the similarity with like, like women and when it comes to like just general women in the, in like bartending or wait, waiting tables, or even with client work, you know, you might have some inappropriate comments coming from male customers or clients. And when they're not getting that support, that creates a lot of stress from on, on the woman in the workplace. And it sounds like it's a very similar experience that, you know, if, if I'm gay and someone's making comments about that, like that are completely inappropriate and my employer isn't supporting me, then that would obviously create so much stress. Like, I think that there's probably a lot of different groups that experience a similar thing that you need to have that employer backing you. And then obviously if your employer's not supporting you, um, when it comes to, you know, who you are that might show up in your family, then that would continue with the rest of your interactions around your work and your family, because you're not going to be like, okay, well, this customer said a horrible thing to me and my manager didn't support me and kick that customer out. So now like, do I really want to talk to you about my family life anymore? Probably not. Right. Yeah. And so it did create these like strained relationships. And I thought another like interesting scenario uh, that someone reported to us was that, you know, this, this woman, um, they were having a, like a, basically a work picnic type event. And, um, it was all women that worked in her office and the HR folks sent the email and they put in parentheses husband's welcome. And, oh. um, she got the sense that the HR people, they knew that, uh, she was a lesbian and, you know, she got the sense that they weren't like too keen on the idea of being inclusive. So mm. she went to her boss and said, look, you know, I got this email and I just think like HR might need to be a little bit more like inclusive in the way that they state stuff. It's not a huge deal, whatever. Um, but maybe if they could like restate and say partners welcome or something and resend the email, it would just make me feel more comfortable bringing my partner. And, um, and so she told her boss and then her boss went to take H went to go to HR and HR said, Oh, well, we'll just change the language on the invite and send it back out. And when they sent it back out, they put, spouses welcome and then came to her desk and said 
you know, we don't have a lot of money in our budget to support like everybody bringing somebody that they're not married to. So like, you know, it's only if you're married. And this was before gay marriage was legalized. Oh gosh. So the woman was just like, you know, it was really clear to me that this was fairly targeted towards me. Um, and you know, and, but her boss like let that sit, you know what I mean? That, okay, I went to address the situation with you and HR basically said, oh, well, you know, we don't have the budget for this one extra person basically. So we're just going to put spouses welcome. And it was not a big company. So it's not like it would have been like thousands of like, you know, whatever people that they were talking about. And so she said like, it was just another instance where their manager really didn't step up to the plate. Yeah. That's terrible. I mean, uh, yeah, clearly that was targeted. I would have been interested to see how they would have handled it, though, if there were people that, you know, had, like, boyfriends. Yeah, right. Because like, I'm guessing with a small company, maybe everybody was married except yeah. for her. So yeah. that that's a little different. But, like, what would you do then? Yeah, like, how, right. Like, that was the HR's so argument was... We only want people who are married, but obviously, this which means argument, everybody else. Yeah. Yes, and this woman's argument was like, "Well, if that was an option for us, we would be." But yeah, not. and also like that's just too. I mean, from a workplace perspective, that's just too odd of a distinction. Yeah. You know? Oh, it's um, it is very weird because like a you're not even like supposed to be. I mean, obviously, when someone's in the job, you'll know if they're married. But like when you're interviewing someone, you can't find out if they're married. Like, right. That is not supposed to be a factor that impacts anything. Um, and what if? You know, it could be anybody that doesn't want to get married. Right, There's so yeah. many different yeah. options. Maybe I never want to get married, but, like, I live with a close friend, and that's right. it. Like, yeah, that right. per- that friend is my family. Right. We're not romantically involved. That person is right. my family. Why Whatever. can't I bring right. them? Right. Like, it just makes no sense to make it so limited yep. that only if you're married to a man can right. you come. <laughs> it's really interesting. So, yeah, so we had some people that reported things like that. Um, so it was just like this very stressful experience overall for people to feel like they couldn't mesh their work and family together when they wanted to. Um, they had to keep things more separate. They were leaving details out of stories or feeling like they had to come up with other alternative storylines to tell people. The one woman was like, yeah, like, uh, she was not out at work. Um, and so she was like, I think that everyone at my workplace thinks I'm really weird because I always tell them that I'm going on vacation, but I never tell them with who. And like, they ask me for pictures and I'll always show them just like pictures of me by myself. And I think that they think that I just like go on vacation alone all the time, but I just like can't tell them what's going on. So, um, so while that's a compounded issue of disclosure on top of then causing work family conflicts, um, as well, um, it's just, it's, it was a very complicated web of when my stigmatized identity has something to do with relationships, it causes these other stresses in the workplace for me that have to do with work and family that were not on company's radars at all. Yeah. That is, I'm, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting topic and I think it's a great, great thing that you're doing this research because there's just so many people that are impacted by this. Um, what do you have any other findings or do you want to talk about what people can do? Um, so just, just quickly, the, the things that result from all of these stressors um, are things like feeling depersonalized. So people reported a lot of like, you know, I just feel like um, I can't be myself. And so I just feel removed. Like mm. I feel like everybody's a part of something and I'm just sort of sitting on the outskirts. So you're like the outsider. Exactly. So people felt like they were, um, they were removed from scenarios. People felt like they had less dignity um, because they felt like, Things that people said in the workplace, um, even small comments where people would know like, oh, they know that you're in a same sex relationship, but they're not thinking about it right now. So they'll make comments about even like political comments or things like that that are just really 
hurtful to the person because of the type of family that they have mm. that, um, you know, there people are like sitting there silently feeling like I, why am I not treated with the same dignity as other people because of my family arrangement? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was problematic. And people also felt like, um, they were on alert a lot. Like I have to try to get cues from people before I figure out how much to say, what to say, whether or not I can bring stuff up. And that was just taking a lot of mental energy for people Um, and then like, finally people felt like their family identity was weakened in some ways because they didn't feel fully a part of their family because, and some of them even felt guilty Mm -hmm. about the fact that they were leaving this information out. So there was a lot of like psychological stress that stemmed from it. So I guess the big, so what of it is like, this is causing a, a pain. Um, it's taking people's mental energy away from what they could be putting on the job into an area that doesn't need to happen if people were just more inclusive or more educated on different types of families. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, from a workplace perspective, as well as from an individual employee perspective, it's really important for people to try to figure out how to create more family, more diverse family inclusive environments um, so that people don't have to deal with this. Yeah. uh, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. So it's like the whole depersonalization that you were talking about. So like, I feel like an outsider, which I'm sure that a lot of these people, if depending on where they're living too, might feel like an outsider all the time. So now I go to work and I feel like an outsider again. And then I'm feeling really guilty and a little bit like an outsider for my family because I'm not like owning up to my family the way that I would want to at work. Um, so that's obviously going to create a lot of stress. And I don't, I mean, I agree. I think workplaces need to be very inclusive and they need to be respectful of everybody and their and their their family lives and the choices they make in their life whether it's um you know living in a same-sex marriage or having you know any other untraditional family situation and some of them you can't you know even obviously there's a lot that you can't control too if you're talking about um same-sex marriage but also like when you're talking about like disabilities and things like those you know i know we really focus a lot on the same-sex marriage or partnership group but with all those other areas, those aren't things that you can control either. And if the workplace is not inclusive, like, what are you going to do? You're not going to, like, disown your child because they were born with some issue um, that that you're already having stress to deal with. Um, so it's just kind of crazy to think about the fact that, you know, you everyone needs to work, right? To, or most people need to work so that they can provide for their families. And yet their families can't be part of that work. Yeah. Yeah, and and you're right. So this paper just, um, we just interviewed people in same-sex couples, but we have another sample of people that we spoke to who identified themselves as being in stigmatized families, um, and they really ran the gamut, like I mentioned before. So we interviewed this woman who was married to a Muslim man, and um, that was an interesting uh, situation because um, she actually brought him to a work picnic and or some kind of work event um, that was during the day. Um, And he showed up and basically she said like there were all these people in her workplace who were just like staring at him and like making him feel really uncomfortable. And she said, I think like the quote that she provided was something to the effect of like you, you know, I got the sense that people felt like I brought a terrorist to the picnic, you know, and she said it was super stressful. They got home and her husband was just so embarrassed. And, um, you know, he was mad. Like, why did you not tell me that this was going to be this way? And she was like, I did honestly didn't know it was going to be a problem. Um, and it caused a lot of stress and strife for them. And 
Um, you know, it's just one of those things where um, that was another type of stigmatized family identity that she identified as being a problem for work, but definitely different from the specific sample that we had in this paper. Yeah, I think, I mean, really, like you said, any kind of family that might be judged in some way or looked at differently or seen as being different can um, can fall into this category and really be impacted by people not being accepting of them. So, you know, the workplace really needs to be a, a location where you can go and you can do your work and not feel additional stress for no reason. And companies should really care from a cost perspective because you're going to be more productive if you're happy in your work environment. And as you were mentioning, you know, we really want to leadership should really help out and really do what they can to create an inclusive environment. You know, managers, if you're a manager, you can do a lot here. You know, don't be that manager that won't kick out the customer because they said a gay slur um, just because you want the customer's business. Like think about the broader perspective. Think about your employees' well-being. Think about them, you know, coming in the, to work and enjoying what they're doing and still enjoying working there with you and being able to, you know, interact with customers in a positive way. Because if you feel like you're always going to be judged by your customer and your customer is going to win, you know, obviously in that case, your bartender is going to be upset and maybe not as chatty with your customers. There's going to be a lot of negative impacts that could then cause people not to come back to your bar because then the, the bartender is not friendly enough or whatever. Um, as a manager, you want to make sure that your employees are feeling included and you want to like basically nix anything that's not helping them. So if there's an interaction with an, another person on your team, you need to address it. You don't just let it go. You don't just say, oh, well, they didn't mean that. Like, address it. Maybe the person didn't mean that. Maybe they didn't realize it. And that's good. You want to have that conversation. Let them know, hey, you said this thing and it actually really, you know, could have been taken negatively. And then that person can adjust their behavior so that it feels more inclusive. Um, and, and then the, the person that, you know, may have felt slighted by that comment can actually feel like, okay, well, I am allowed to be here. And I am allowed to be who I am. Um, and and I know that I, I my manager will have my back. Yeah. And I think what you're talking about is really culture. Um, that there's, you know, having good policies, having good practices on the books is sort of a bare bones approach. You know, people, if something bad happens to you, you can fall back on that and say, you know, look, you broke a policy or whatever the case may be. But it's really about creating this culture of inclusivity. Um, and when something like that happens, you know, somebody in, in the workplace makes a comment that they shouldn't have, or even just uses language that's insensitive in some way or not inclusive in some way, um, people are watching. Other coworkers are watching how leadership responds or how other coworkers respond. Um, and so it's not just that one employee that's affected by it. The research, not this research, but other research has shown that um, when things like that happen, the whole workplace um, is is affected negatively mm. because everybody's watching to see well how do how do people respond and if there's no response um, or if the response is not inclusive, it tells somebody it tells the employees as a whole something about that company and about those leaders um, and the way they handle things. It's so interesting. I was coaching a leader once and um, we were talking about this topic. I forget why we were talking about this specific topic, but. Um, it was it was around diversity and inclusion, and he said, you know, I get it with gender and I get it with race, which I don't know if he did or not, but uh, he was like, but I just don't get, like, the sexual orientation thing because, honestly, like, I don't think anyone should be talking about their sexual orientation in the workplace. This is a workplace, like, that's inappropriate. And I was like, you know, just because people, just because you don't think you're talking about it doesn't mean you're not. And I pointed out that he had pictures of him and his wife 
on his desk, pictures of his family. Um, and so I was like, you know, that is you talking about your sexual orientation. You're not thinking about it that way. Mm -hmm. But every time you bring those things up or these pictures on your desk, that is talking about your sexual orientation the same way that LGB people are thinking about it is what you're doing right now and talking about your family and your relationships, et cetera. And he was like, wow, I never really thought about the fact that people talk about being heterosexual. And, um, and so it was really interesting. Right. But, but, um, but it, it's true, um, that we don't frequently think about it that way. Um, and in, in other kinds of ways for other types of families, it can be similar. You know, we can talk freely about things that aren't stigmatized. We don't think about how much we talk about relationships. We talk about our families. We talk about what we did on the weekend or after work. Um, but it really does matter. And if your workplace culture is not inclusive and people don't feel that they can share that, they're not bringing their whole selves to work. They're spending extra mental energy trying to filter in, filter out information. Who can I tell what, who can't? And that's a mess. So decrease the mental mess for your employees, make them feel better. And that's about creating that culture of inclusivity. And it really starts from the top. Well, thank you so much, Katina, for sharing this article, your article with us. I think um, the com I mean, we could probably talk about this for hours and hours and hours <laughs> on end. So we won't do that right now. I'm no. sure we'll bring this up again um, with other research. But I think it was a really great conversation about inclusivity in the workplace. And um, I really hope that our listeners can can take this information. And if you're if you're you know one of the people that's in a stigmatized family and you're feeling stressed in your relationships and in your workplace, you know, maybe it's time for you to look for something else um, of a place that's more inclusive. Or maybe if you're able to try to broach that topic, you can start changing the, the culture of your organization or at least your team. Um, managers, same goes for you and, and leaders. Definitely. You really should be doing this. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Um, for anyone that wants to find out more about the types of things we write about, please check out our website at workerbeing.com, which is W-O-R-K-R-B-E-E-I-N-G. You can also contact us um, via email at workerbeing at gmail.com or on social media, where our handle is at workerbeing at, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So we'd love to hear from you, and please please comment and share your feedback or you know any experiences you may have had in this specific topic. Thanks. Bye, everyone. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson.